Good morning, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the in the Pacific Northwest. I'm sorry I've been away from the lecture for a week. I've had a couple of things I had to take care of that did not allow me to get enough to write and then therefore to produce as a lecture. But I'm back. It is the 6th of May, 2021. So I want to remind you we are talking about the immune system and aging in the general sense. And I've been spending some time discussing the intersection of the immune response and its co-localized affinity and alteration of gene expression at the level of normal chromatin remodeling and then subsequent to that, epigenomic writing. And then that epigenomic uh, alteration being read at certain intervals, thus altering gene expression, leading to an epigenomic phenotype, which sometimes reads through, through multiple cell divisions, and then will be acted upon by the uh, constitutive regulatory systems, including the immune response that the cell partakes in, particularly in the central nervous system. <clears throat> so, get back to this. Now, a paper published in Genes um, in 2019, I'll put it in the notes, tells us that the higher epigenome conservation of duplicated genes, such as those we describe as copy number variations in autism, uh, from the same family or from groups of families of genes, let's say like transcription factors, when they share a similar transposon event environment, suggests a role for differential presence of transposable elements in the evolutionary divergence of duplication through variation, ultimately leading to an altered epigenome. Okay? I know that's quite a mouthful, but that is a basic thing I want to now talk about this morning. I want to remind you that autism spectrum disorder, uh, which I described in two different review articles, I summarized a few years back in one um, synthesis in a slide. Let me explain to you what the slide shows or what this diagram basically shows. And maybe I'll reproduce it in my show notes. You have a, a prodromal phase in autism spectrum disorder. And so part of it includes a genetic predisposition. And that genetic predisposition can lead to single nucleotide polymorphisms by altering a mechanism which indeed is imparted by that genetic predisposition. Now, when a single nucleotide polymorphism occurs in a particular gene, it may be associated with the disease, you can then get replication and recombination events, and that can lead to copying of a variation of that altered gene. Genetic predisposition also under the influence of environmental alterations, including the immune response, can then provide also an epigenetic signature 
Now, that epigenetic modification can also lead directly to copy number variation. In fact, the immune response in its multiple levels of both innate and acquired, and then within the innate system, the aspects of signaling and surveillance, for example, and then leading to the acquired immune response and all the T-cell differentiation and T-helper cell uh, mediated events, including alteration and inflammatory responses, B-cell activation and immunoglobulin production and secretion. Immune response has an ultimate role in, therefore, the internal environment. It has an effect on genetic predisposition because the immune response is being constantly used to tailor the genome during the very early stages uh, after embryogenesis, and in fact, immediately at embryogenesis. Immune response also has an effect on single nucleotide polymorphism production, the replication process, that is DNA, the recombination process, including DNA repair. The immune response also directly can impose copy number variation production and mechanisms I've been talking about. Immune response also can directly affect the epigenetic phenomena, such as methylation and acetylation. All of that can be squared away into developmental processes in the humans that can go from a healthy central nervous system and then upon a spectrum of severity leading to the autism spectrum disorder, uh, which of course is a constellation of CNS presentations. So with that in mind, and with the paper we just introduced you from genes, let's continue on with this now. A migration of T lymphocytes into the brain of Alzheimer's disease patients has been observed in multiple studies in the last at least 15 years. Stimulation of microglia is involved, and that's caused by amyloid beta plaque or maybe A beta oligomers. This was first looked at uh, in a good lab-based experimental model in transgenic mice. And you get injection of the A-beta 1 to 42 uh, amino acid oligomers in those some of those studies, and that leads to a release of pro-inflammatory cytokines, such as the, the typical players interleukin-1-beta and tuberculosis factor alpha. Now, those two cytokines promote the production of a chemokine called CXCLA, and this can be induced in endothelial cells, okay? Endothelial cells that are part of the central nervous system. Now, T cells of Alzheimer's disease patients are enriched in the chemokine receptor CXCR2, which upon binding to the chemokine CXCL8, indeed promotes T cell transmigration across endothelial barriers, including, that's correct, the blood-brain barrier. Now, that particular transportal movement through the BBB, through the blood-brain barrier, will be inhibited in these animal model studies if you use an anti-TNF antibody or if you inhibit directly the CXCR2, the receptor on the T cells, and there are plenty of antagonists for that receptor. 
because it's known to induce T-cell mobilization. So it's been well characterized in the literature. Studies in rodent models that have shown that once in the brain, T-cells will modify microglial phenotype, including their motility and phagocytic activity. And this is one of the hallmarks of this is the secretion of interferon gamma, where the microglia can phagocytose and present amyloid, usually in the form of a ligamer, uh, uh, and a, just a beta protein, to the T-cell as a form of stimulation, right? Working through the T-cell receptor, which we also have talked quite extensively about, about the recombination mechanisms of the RAG1, RAG2 uh, proteins. Now, whether this mechanism occurs in humans, this is all animal studies I've talked about to this point, uh, uh, with AD, and to what extent it's utilized, uh, like how, how, how common is that mechanism, is still an open question, although it has been studied. Now, RAG1 and RAG2 knockout mice, which of course are going to lack B and T lymphocytes because there's no recombination for either the uh, B uh, immunoglobulin pathway or for the T cell receptor. So you got RAG1, RAG2 knockout mice. What you get is a demonstrated diminishment of cognitive capabilities when compared to wild type mice and an increased amyloid beta plaque deposition and microglial activation in amylogenic models. Okay, now this has been well described. Nonetheless, these approaches have not yet teased out specific contributions of different lymphocyte subtypes. And that can explain why there's a lot of differentiation because, you know, there are multiple different T cells, some of which are very proactive effector cells, such as the TH1 lineage, and some of which are more nuanced, like TH17, and require coactivation you do with some other kind of antigen stimulation. And of course, you do have the whole population of T regulatory cells, which will, um, when they're functioning in their regulatory mode, will put a damper on the T cell response entirely. So these are things we've been talking about. That's why I'm, I'm putting them back together here. Now, <clears throat> We get a lesson from an understanding of this by looking at general brain trauma. And so if we look at brain injury and the immune response associated with that, this should give us a handle on what could be occurring in the elderly brain vis-a-vis -vis an association with neurodegeneration, such as in the common diseases, AD, PD, and prefrontal dementia. Okay, So soon after an ischemic insult, such as a stroke, for example, you get increased levels of cytokines and chemokines, the ones I just talked about, and they will enhance the expression of a uh, collection of adhesion molecules, and these will occur on cerebral endothelial cells. That will, of course, cause the adhesion, and then the transendothelial migration of circulating <laughs> neutrophils and monocytes, the innate immune response, okay? Now, those immune cells, the, the, the neutrophils, for example, and the um, uh, monocytes, they're going to accumulate in the capillaries. And then what they're going to do there, because they're cells, they're going to decrease cerebral blood flow. That can further cause extravasation into the brain parenchyma. 
Now, besides that, the infiltrating leukocytes that we just talked about, as well as resident brain cells, including neurons and microglia, are going to release their own pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, and they're also going to generate reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen. And that can further result in an insult and tissue damage, and then leading to a potential increase in inflammatory response, and then ultimately, yeah, neurodegeneration. Moreover, recent studies have highlighted the involvement of matrix metalloproteinases, something I've talked about a great deal here in authentic biochemistry over the years. Now, what those metalloproteinases do is exercise the metalloproteinases in the matrix uh, extracellularly is they're involved in the propagation and regulation of all of the other constellation of neuroinflammatory responses that we see in ischemic brain injury. Those enzymes, of course, cleave protein components of the extra, of the ECM, the extracellular matrix. What proteins? Collagen, proteoglycan, and laminin, to name three major ones. But they also, these metalloproteinases, process a number of cell surface and soluble proteins, including receptors on the surface of, of uh, cells and cytokines, such as the proto-interleukin-1-beta which you talked about many times also in the past. So we're a paper published in Feb's journal a few years back. Consider a CNS insult, such as an ischemic response, uh, where you're going to get a pro-interleukin-1-beta, then coming up with an MMP, a metalloprotease, which will then convert the pro-IL-1-beta to the pro-inflammatory IL-1-beta. That can be caused directly then from a uh, CNS insult, okay? So once you make IL-1-beta, of course, if there's any antibody to it, as as produced previously from, say, memory B cells, it would block that response or it would at least turn it down. But if interleukin-1-beta increases and binds an interleukin-1 receptor, you're going to get the following. This is all occurring as a sequelae after ischemia and the CNS. At the endothelium level, you're going to get an increase in permeability, and you're going to get an upregulation of the ICAM-1, that is an adhesion molecule I just talked about that are in the endothelia. In the glial cells, you're going to get astrogliosis, that means an inflammation of astrocytes, a proliferation of microglia, cell division there, and a a continued increase in release of neurotoxins. In neurons, this is the third cell lineage now being affected by interleukin-1-beta binding to the interleukin-1 receptor as a result of CNS and salt. Neurons and other cells will also turn on the cyclooxygenase pathway, so you'll make oxy fatty acids, the prostaglandin pathway, right? You're also going to get nitric oxide production, and you also get the induction directly because of this reactive oxygen occurring, particularly the uh, oxygenated fatty acids, the cosinoids, the prostaglandins in particular. Uh, you're going to get induction of TNF-alpha. So all of that will lead to, ultimately, 
CNS neurodegeneration and potential in an ischemic response if it's a straightforward stroke into brain damage. And that would be the result of the ischemia, right? So you see where I, why I'm talking about this pathology as related to the elderly pathology uh, upon expression of a, an antigen that can then result in microglial stimulation of infiltrated T lymphocytes, such as can happen with a beta protein or with tau protein in many of the neurodegenerative diseases we talk about in the elderly. So more on this. Hours after ischemia, astrocytes will become hypertrophic. That means they'll increase in size. Microglial cells will evolve into an amoeboid uh, geometry with an enlarged cell body and a very shortened cellular process. Now, within 24 hours after focal ischemia, you'll get an intense microglial reaction, and that'll develop in ischemic tissue, particularly in the penumbra. And within days, most microglial cells will transform into phagocytes. Okay, so they become phagocytic, which is one of the things that microglia can do because they are resident macrophages in the CNS. So third component of this interaction is you get an activation of those microglial cells, outright enhancing inflammatory responses and contributing to further local tissue injury in the CNS. Indeed, immunosuppressive drugs like monocycline reduce infarct damage by preventing microglial activation, which of course is all triggered by stroke. However, macrophages and microglial cells contribute to tissue recovery at the same time. They do so by scavenging necrotic cells, so removing the debris, and inducing a plasticity at the synapse. One of the things that macrophages and microglial cells in general do is they enhance plasticity in the central nervous system. One of the other mechanisms involved in their activation. So when you get an ablation of proliferating microglial cells, that can actually, in the short term, increase brain injury because you're preventing the scavenging necrotic cells, this mopping up of anything that's dead and dying, which could then induce a much larger hyperimmune response, leading to more neurodegeneration, particularly if you activate the T cells. You understand. So depending on the cellular context and microenvironment, the inflammatory cells can induce cellular death, or indeed they can enhance cellular repair and maintenance, thus affording the plasticity necessary to maintain synaptic connections and neurotransmission. So you see the trade-off there. So the removal of damaged neurons that associates synaptic connections with the simultaneous repair of other neuronal circuits is indeed a mechanism that I've been promoting now for several years in what I've written and also in my lectures uh, at university and also online as a direct mechanism for what I call the sculpting of the brain network. And that's a means by which, so a transcendental, the highly innervated and connected prefrontal cortex can receive and respond to neurotransmission even from the limbic system, okay? which has to be reinforced in space and time. Okay? So this is all part of this larger model I've been describing. 
So the question considered is how do immune cells and immunoregulatory proteins, including things like cytokines, chemokines, immunoglobulins, growth factors, metalloproteinases, how do all of those recognize some neurons and not others? So which nuclei are being affected? <clears throat> and that could be a large scale, like is it affecting the amygdala, the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, the prefrontal cortex, what regions of the prefrontal cortex, right? So you get the idea how this can also have a metabolic zonation effect, something we really emphasize in intermediate metabolism when I teach the general biochemistry. So the mechanism for maintaining and increasing synaptic strength in the CNS versus an obsolescence and programmed cell death could, of course, all be mediated by this mechanism or cellular phenomena known as, wait for it, pattern recognition. Something we know when we, when we describe microbiological pathology. Okay, it's called pattern recognition. There are pattern recognition receptors. Now, <clears throat> let me explain something about the immune response. See, now I'm bringing in more canonical, classical immune response. I've given you now what's going on in the CNS. I've given you a lot of previous literature about this. I talked to you about the recombination input in the last, what, three, four lectures at least. Consider a primary exposure to antigen now. You get sort of in a canonical way, although there's feedback control, phagocytosis by macrophages. Then you get a uh, antigen presentation where the macrophage can act as an APC, uh, antigen presenting cell. This can also be passed on to dendritic cells in circulation. Now, all of that is going to stimulate T helper cells. Once you stimulate T helper cells, that's going to stimulate B cells. And of course, B cells can be directly affected by primary exposure to antigen because of the B cell. RAG complex mediated immunoglobulin pathway, that recombination pathway, remember? Primary antigen exposure can also directly affect the cytotoxic T cell lineages coming off of the CD8 positive pathway, right? Naive T cells. So remember that. So you don't have to move through the T helper cells and through that macrophage presentation to them. You can go directly to B cells, B memory cells, for example, uh, or even naive B cells that have not yet converted to plasma cells. And of course, you can trigger cytosine T cells. You don't need all that multiple surveillance and you don't need co-stimulation with multiple receptors with the cytotoxic Ts. <clears throat> now, once you have the helper T cell functioning, stimulating this whole immune response, you then generate memory helper T cells, TH cells. And those are going to then be turned on when you get a secondary exposure to a specific antigen. This is exactly how vaccinations work, right? Some vaccinations, not all. So but when memory T cells are activated, then, <coughs> they're going to also activate memory plasma cells, first B cells and plasma cells, and you'll make these, you know, the plasma cells, which will go on to what? Produce antibodies, right? Immunoglobulins, IgG, uh, most commonly. Memory helper T cells will also, also fire other memory T cells, and these can then 
activate cytotoxic T cells directly, as can the first-line cytotoxic T cells either trigger the memory T cells or naive and therefore now activated cytotoxic T cells that have not yet to have been activated. All of this will lead then ultimately to what's known as the secondary antibiotic response, and now you're full-blown on the way to acquire an immunity. Okay, that's a very, very, very skeletonized overview of how uh, the primary immune response, the, uh, the innate immune response that triggers the acquired immune response, and how you get antibody production, you get circulating antibodies. Okay, I wanted to remind you of that sequence of events. Now, now let's go deeper. There are two functioning, functional, and therefore different major classes of pattern recognition receptors. Now, again, these pattern recognition receptors have been well described in the path, uh, pathophysiology literature, particularly in microbiological pathogens, but also in pathogens like viruses. But certainly parasites and bacteria have been well described for uh, these pattern recognition receptors. So, you have endocytic pattern recognition receptors, and you have signaling pattern recognition receptors. So the endocytic pattern, uh, RRs, are found on the surface of phagocytes, and they promote the attachment of microorganisms to the phagocyte, leading to their subsequent engulfment and, of course, their destruction. Now, these include these incidences, the subset of these, there's the mannose receptors. They're on the surface of phagocytes and they bind mannose rich glycans. Uh, the short carbohydrate change with the sugar mannose or fructose is the terminal sugar that, of course, you find commonly on microbial glycoproteins, right? Part of that glycocalyx. You also, though, find these uh, mannose uh, sugar containing oligosaccharides. Associated with glycolipids. So that's just glycoproteins, but also glycolipids. This is often overlooked, but glycolipids are very important in the antigen presentation process, and especially as they relate to uh, antigens coming from microbes. So glycoproteins, glycolipids. And uh, and even though you get a differentiation when you look at the mouse models and the human models, they're found in both. So human glycoproteins and glycolipids typically have terminal and acetylglucosamine and sialic acid groups. You know, I've talked a lot about this when we describe the sphingomyelin pathway, right? As an association with triggering a potential immune response, and particularly in the CNS. So you also have C-type lectins, and they're found on the surface of these phagocytes, and those C-type lectins are indeed mannose receptors. Because that's one type of endocytic pattern recognition receptor. Second type is the scavenger receptor. Let me check my time here. I got time. Second type is a scavenger receptor, another endocytic uh, uh, PRR, pattern recognition receptor. Scavenger receptors are found on the surface of phagocytic cells, and they bind to bacterial cell wall components directly, such as lipopolysaccharide, peptidoglycan, and of course the lipotychoic acids. Yes, lipotychoic means that they are. Uh, lipids. Now, these are also scavenger receptors, 
for certain components of other types of microbes, as well as for even non-microbial events, such as stress, virally infected, or simply injured cells or damaged cells. Now, scavenger receptors include the CD36, which I've talked a lot about as an open receptor for fatty acid uptake, but also CD68 and another protein called SRB1, all of we've discussed in Authentic Biochemistry Lecture over the last several months. Now, the third type of endocytic pattern recognition receptor, and I'll leave you with that today, are the opsonin receptors. Now, what opsonins are, are soluble molecules produced as a part of the body's immune defense, and they bind microbes to phagocytes. One portion of the opsonin binds to a pathogen-associated molecular pattern on the microbial surface, and another portion binds to a specific receptor on the now-being-activated phagocytic cell. Okay? So this has been well-described in gram-positive cell-envelope-mediated cell immune response. This is classical molecular microbiology. Again, that's where I want you to be right now because I want you to understand the canonical pathway to the immune response and how I am using the understanding of these mechanisms, the transcendental of these mechanisms to get into the central nervous system to sculpt it and then how that, that mechanism decays over time and you get the elderly aging central nervous system morbidity and mortality. I'm stopping here. This is Dr. Dan Guerra from the uh, Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Pacific Northwest on the 6th of May, 2021, saying uh, bye for now.